Hello and welcome to Hudson Institute's latest program on the war in Ukraine. My name is Peter Rao. I'm a senior fellow at Hudson and the director of our Center on Europe and Eurasia. And today we're coming to you from Capitol Hill, the Hart Senate office buildings, the offices of Mike Rounds of South Dakota. Thank you so much, Senator, for graciously opening up your offices for this conversation today. I appreciate the opportunity to visit about Ukraine and Europe with you. Well, Senator Rounds, many of you know, uh, holds very important uh, committee assignments. And for our purposes today, the most important are the Committee on Armed Services and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. He was previously governor of South Dakota. And I thought very interestingly, recently Vanderbilt University and the University of Virginia uh, ranked him as the second most effective lawmaker on national security issues, according to their Center on Effective Lawmaking. So we thought we have to come see you and talk about uh, Ukraine to hear the secret sauce of what makes an effective lawmaker on national security Teamwork. issues. Teamwork. <laughs> Teamwork. I've got a good team. And no doubt it helps that you have uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base just upside yeah. uh, Rapid City in uh, South Dakota. And the B-21, of course, is heading Look, your way, too. You hit it on the head. And the B-21 bomber is literally, uh, it, it is, as I would say, with all due respect, it is a badass weapon of war and peace. And And, and the point there being... We can have peace as long as our adversaries know that we're prepared for war. The B-21 is the most advanced weaponry that we've ever deployed, and it has the ability to reach out and touch people when they're not behaving themselves. This is something that we won't be using lightly, but it will be an everyday flyer. It's one that will be available to reach out a long ways, and they can't see it. So uh, the deployment is still classified in terms of when it's going to be available, but uh, the first flight will be this year. And uh, it is on time and on budget, which is something we can't say about most major programs. Well, with that, we're already at the breakdown of deterrence and war and peace and uh, uh, having a muscular military to ensure um, uh, that, uh, that deterrence holds. And uh, I thought very interestingly, seeing you on Meet the Press a few months ago, uh, you made the connection between our withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, the war in Ukraine. And subsequently, on top of that, raised the issue our performance in Ukraine might determine how Xi Jinping views the South Pacific and Taiwan. Can you talk a little bit about what's at stake here in the war, what really the big strategic questions are that keep us in this conflict and supporting the Ukrainians? You have to respect the intellect of Xi Jinping. Um, he is the leader of China that says by itself that he is not foolish. He's going to be very careful in what he does. He watches world events. They take uh, indications from our behavior. They look to see long-term whether or not we will be a leader in the world in the future. Whether or not we have uh, withdrawn from Afghanistan, was that an indication that we're withdrawing from world affairs? When they saw the, the, the really the, the, the debacle that was the withdrawal, and it was one that we can't find a single military officer who gave advice to the president of the United States suggesting that we have a withdrawal in that form. They had recommended withdrawals, but in a very calculated way without a date certain. The president on his own and in disregard for from the advice of others said he knew better and that he was the president and he was calling the shots and he was going to withdraw, withdraw on a date certain. That allowed our adversaries that were still there to be empowered and they made life miserable. They killed American servicemen, they disrespected us, and uh, they are now regrouping once again. And so the rest of the world saw that. They looked at it and said, there's decadence in America. They're weak, 
and they won't they won't carry the strong chin forward. Uh, coming in, uh, you also have uh, uh, Putin, who literally doesn't care except for the power and the advancement of Russia in terms of an imperial approach to Europe. It appears that he still believes that they are entitled to the land that is Ukraine today. Uh, in 2014, when we did nothing as, as he worked into Crimea, he said, we just will test this new leader again today. And what he found out, though, was is that the rest of Europe made it very clear that he was not going to get a free ride in Ukraine. President Zelensky has stood the test of time so far. He has been a great leader and he has helped to bring Europe together. We have provided uh, resources and now Xi Jinping is looking at this saying, you know, I'm not so sure that I want to really get in and threaten Taiwan the way that, that Putin threatened Ukraine. I want to watch this. I want to see how this plays out. I want to learn from this. And they are watching us and they are trying to figure out whether or not it's worth it in terms of, uh, of material cost, uh, embarrassment, uh, and Chinese blood to actually invade uh, Taiwan or to go about uh, negotiating in a diplomatic way for a reunification sometime in the future. Hopefully, the strong stand that NATO, including the United States, and absolutely backed by Congress, that we will support Ukraine and we will see that Putin is stopped in his tracks. Hopefully, that sends a message to uh, Xi Jinping that taking on Taiwan could hold similar types of costs as what this has been to Russia. Long-winded answer. No, but it's, it's an excellent one because I think precedence and credibility matter. Uh, we hosted at Hudson Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan, which she transited through the U.S., and she very clearly connected, as did the Speaker of the Taiwanese Parliament who visited us this week, the battlefield in Ukraine to peace in the South Pacific and the Taiwan Strait. You also mentioned a congressional leadership strongly in support of Ukraine and uh, ensuring that Ukraine has the military kit and the budgetary support to stay in the fight against the Russians. Speaker McCarthy had that now somewhat famous press conference in Jerusalem where he uh, went after a Russian quote-unquote journalist who uh, uh, asked him about support for Ukraine. He said, I stand, I stand for supporting Ukraine. We've seen members of the Armed Services Committee, which you sit on, as well as the vast majority of, of senators stand by Ukraine. There are some voices in the party, though, who worry that in an era of metastasizing deficits and debts, we can't afford to support Ukraine and that we shouldn't send money uh, to Ukraine. What do you say to those uh, Republicans or maybe some voters back home in South Dakota who worry about the cost of supporting Ukraine? We, we also recognize the cost of war and we recognize the cost of maintaining peace. I think the cost of maintaining peace is less than the cost of maintaining or having a war. I think the cost of an all-out war pales in comparison to what we are spending right now in terms of providing military assistance to Ukraine. It will pale in comparison, the cost of a war will pale in comparison with the cost of providing Taiwan with the tools to defend itself as well. Long term, we don't want a world war, but we have to be in a position uh, to defend and to maintain a, an international set of rules that have kept peace in this world for the most part for literally multiple generations, since World War II, really. Mm -hmm. And while there have been wars, they have not been world wars. 
But when you talk about the superpowers, the United States, China's getting close. Russia has more nuclear weapons than basically anybody else. When you talk about that, you have to recognize that in this great powers competition, we have to maintain the ability to detract or to eliminate other people's thought that they might just maybe be able to win a war against us. Overwhelming strength and deterrence keeps us safe. If at any point someone who is imperialistically driven, such as Putin, decides it might be worth it for the long run to test it, has to be proven up front that they're wrong. You stop them as soon as you can. You display the might in the hopes that if you do have a fight, it's a short and quick battle and that it is never a fair fight, that our young men and women always have the advantage. And that's the reason why we spend the money now. If we can spend the money on technology and resources and put ourselves in a position to end a war quickly, then our adversaries may very well think twice about ever starting the war in the first place. Uh, as a, a member of the Senate, um, two of your primary duties in foreign relations are, number one, passing budgets and funding our military. The second is an oversight responsibility that you have. A lot of the oversight is uh, uh, talk, at least in the general press and the media, is about oversight of specific monies that's going to Ukraine. And I think that's been addressed, um, uh, I think, and you've addressed it in the media relatively satisfactorily. Well, let me just, let me just make it clear. Yeah, look, 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 there's, there's, we, we know that nothing is ever perfect, but we have clear evidence and we have multiple auditors, inspector generals and so forth right. there that are following up on the dollars. We believe that the vast majority of what we can see is going to the war effort just as it was supposed to. I will never say that in any war that there isn't some loss uh, in terms of resources, but the vast majority, the vast majority is being put to the use it was intended. And we clearly have the support of the president of Ukraine in making certain that uh, that it is done the way that we have laid it out, and, and, and he understands that this is a this is a case of where if they mess this up, right, this can be the death knell of their country. So I mean, they're, they're not going to mess right. it up. They're dependent on Western aid to stay in the fight, and it's also logical that this is getting to the front because they're fighting a much larger adversary. If they were diverting weapons elsewhere, some conspiracy theorists. What would be the benefit of of, exactly. of, of of diverting some weapons, getting paid a few bucks for it, and then turning around and losing your country, right, or losing your life? Right. So no, look there. This is a case of true commitment on their part. But the oversight question I really wanted to get to is uh, one of defining what the administration's actual strategy is in the war. I've noticed in the press releases that the State Department sends out announcing certain weapon systems and the drawdowns going to Ukraine, that they add this line, which the president has adopted, that they are prepared to support Ukraine as long as it takes. But they never quite define what it really is in that sense. When you press the administration, when members come before you from the administration, senior officials to your committees, and when you're in conversation with them, what do they say the administration's strategy is for Ukraine? Is it an open-ended, sort of boil the frog type of approach that plays on time? Are they looking to wind down the war after the counteroffensive through a negotiation? I mean, how do you read it? We question uh, their support. We question their bureaucracy. We question their timing in terms of getting things there in a time frame that is expected of them. Mm -hmm. uh, we push them hard to make sure that they're delivering in an on-time way. And in some cases, they literally have looked at this thinking that 
they're going to say, such as Abrams tanks, we're going to deliver 31 Abrams tanks. And then they come back and they say, well, it might take two years. Our challenge to them then is, is why is it going to take two years? We know better. What's going on here? And now suddenly we've been told, oh, well, we've looked at this again, and now we're talking about a much quicker time frame, which they've shared with us, the time frame. And I'm not sure I can talk about that in this setting or not, but we have a date. We know when. But it didn't start out that way. So it has been pressure from Congress. And you know, I, I, when, we, when we do things internationally, we do our best not to be partisan in nature. But let me just share that I think the fact that Republicans and Democrats alike in Congress have pushed the administration has made them begin to at least lead, beginning in the back, but pushing towards the front a little bit more all the time. We wish they were leading more to the front right now. Mm. We're going to continue to push to the front, and we're going to continue to let them very clearly know that our expectations are that if we've appropriated funds and we've directed and authorized the use of weapons, we expect them to deliver those weapons in a timely and businesslike manner. And if not, we want to know why not. And we've been doing that. A lot of it you have to do behind closed doors because you don't want to share where they're going and when they're going to get there and how they're getting there. That's been one of the challenges we have is sharing with the American public. These are being delivered. Um, the vast majority of the resources that we have said we were going to deliver, we have delivered. Um, we've got more to deliver, and we're probably going to have to look at more resources in the future depending upon how this advancement by Ukraine this spring and summer goes. Do you uh, anticipate being able to pass, if this latest tranche of money is spent by the administration, a new package of funding for uh, Ukraine come late summer or whenever it might be? Or are you worried about that vote in the Senate and the House? We will do our due diligence. We'll make sure that the money is directed and that there are plans for how they're going to deploy it. We'll ask the hard questions but we won't delay our decision on making it work. But we're gonna push them to make sure that they've got the same focus that, that we have, which is the delivery in a timely fashion so that it can actually be effective in defeating Putin in Russia and sending a message that this is gonna be an extremely costly endeavor for Russia and their best hope should be the withdrawal and a peace plan long-term. The Imperial attempts by Putin can never be rewarded. We have to send that message. And the rest of these, these folks out there that have imperial designs on other places, including Xi Jinping in China, have got to understand that there will be a cost involved and they have to measure that cost with the probability of success. And the probability of success in their mind has got to be extremely low and long-term especially given that Putin has inverted the nuclear logic and used offensive threats of nuclear use to try to push the United States from delivering certain weapons to the Ukrainians. If that precedent is set, third countries might decide for themselves, well, the Americans can be pushed off of weapons deliveries. And uh, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons famously at Budapest in the mid-1990s. So we too need nuclear weapons. And that, of course, is a superpower responsibility to keep the nonproliferation regime Intact. So I think that's a that's a that's an astute point, and I hope one all of our listeners uh, will pick up as well. Look, we 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 we, but in order to do that, and here's the caveat: that costs us more money mm -hmm. because we are in the middle of upgrading our nuclear command and control, and upgrading our nuclear weapons capabilities. We want to do that in such a fashion that there is no question as to our competency, or our capability, or our ability to really extend power if 
ever necessary in order to stop the aggression in the first place. Um, President Ronald Reagan suggested Star Wars. He suggested the ability to stop our adversaries from doing us harm. That has to be a part of what we look at in the future as well. So that not only would they suffer devastating losses, should they ever decide to, to attack us, but they have to understand that there is a high probability that we may very well be able to defend against some of those attacks mm -hmm. and stop them in the first place, meaning they would be suffering catastrophic losses and we may very well still survive. And I think that's an important message that Ronald Reagan had and sometimes we forget it and sometimes that's controversial today. I don't think that should be controversial. I think that should be part of our obligation is the defense of our homeland and our allies. And our allies, which is an important way of keeping proliferation, I think, at bay. Uh, since you sit on the uh, on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, I hope you don't punt altogether on this question, but I'll try it anyways. Um, what do you anticipate uh, in this upcoming counteroffensive? What are your hopes? How do you think it will shape American attitudes and the course of the war going forward? I just hope that uh, Ukraine has the resources and the planning and the desire to move Russia out of uh, of Ukraine that they do it in such a fashion that uh, they don't provoke by by aggressively going into Russia, but rather they get right up to and they run the Russians out of Ukraine and out of that part of Ukraine, which is referred to as Crimea. That's my hope. I don't know that they can get that all done this year, but I think they can inflict enough uh, cost on the Russian army that perhaps cooler minds that I believe do exist in Russia mm -hmm take a hard look at whether or not Mr. Putin is doing the right thing and whether or not he needs to either be be stopped uh, or perhaps a change in leadership occurs in Russia. To engender a true spirit of compromise in Moscow, so to speak, uh, to put it delicately. Well, I don't think we could end on a better note because that's a rousing call for uh, support of Ukraine and for the counteroffensive, which we all at Hudson Institute uh, hope for and and certainly support. And we're grateful to your leadership on Capitol Hill. You've been a stalwart uh, supporter of Ukraine and of the American interest uh, in this war, which really is, uh, I think, what's at stake. Uh, I know your time is- Let me, let me yep. just share this with you. I, I, I had the privilege and the opportunity to serve as governor in South Dakota for eight years. <laughs> I went to 31 funerals for young men that had died in the service of our country. I won't forget them. The message, if I could share, is the more we do to prepare right now and the more aggressively we create the systems that protect us and our country, the better chance we have of not having other young men and women have to sacrifice their lives. So whatever it takes, we're going to make damn sure that if they ever do enter into a conflict, it is not a fair fight and that we have overwhelming capabilities and they've got a huge opportunity to come back and to live out the rest of their lives after offering time in our armed services. And so that's my goal, is this overwhelming capabilities to protect young men and women who offer to serve. And I think that's also a, an important distinction between America's wars in the past and the war in Ukraine is there aren't American boots on the ground Correct. shedding blood and we'd like to keep it that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Senator Rounds. Thank you all for joining us today. I know the Senator has a busy schedule, so I'll let you go, but please join us for future programming on the war in Ukraine and all of Hudson's offerings at hudson.org.